Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors, presented by FMG Suite. Listen to interviews with the movers, shakers, geniuses, and innovators of the financial advisory world. Visit FMGSuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. And now, without further delay, the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. Hi, everybody. Mike Woods here, one of the founding members of FMG Suite. Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors presented by FMG Suite. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Samantha Russell, Chief Evangelist for the FMG Suite family of companies. As many of you know, FMG Suite purchased 20 over 10 in December, and Samantha was one of the principals in the organizations, and we are so excited to have her on board. In today's podcast, there are three key segments that I want you to pay attention to. First, Samantha talks about 20 over 10's decision to be purchased by FMG Suite. Listeners may find themselves in a very similar situation. 20 over 10 was a fast-growing company that needed to make an investment in its future. It could either raise money or pursue a strategic partner. That's not unlike decisions financial professionals will face with their practice at some point. Next, we talk about the new SEC rule that clears the way for testimonials, endorsements, and third-party ratings. But don't go jumping the gun. It's not approved yet, and there's a lot of work yet that needs to be done. The good news is, however, that the SEC is updating a 40-year-old rule. Anytime a regulator makes a move like that, it's a positive. Last, Samantha talks about the seven trends that will drive financial professional marketing in 2021. She talked about the new models that are emerging, and she talks about how some traditional marketing strategies have shifted, perhaps forever. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Spread the word. Samantha, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to join our podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, as many of you listeners may know, FMG Suite acquired 20 over 10 in December of last year, and Samantha was one of the principals with the company. Uh, 20 over 10 was an amazing fit for FMG Suite. 20 over 10 works a lot with registered investment advisor, while FMG Suite works primarily with broker-dealers. And 20 over 10 had invested awesome, had invested an awesome amount of money into its platform. And FMG is just learning how great that platform is. So, Samantha, I wanted you to take a few minutes and give our listeners a quick overview of your background and touch on what you were able to accomplish at 20 over 10. Wow. Thank you so much for that great intro. So um, as you said, yes, 20 over 10 and FMG really were competitors in a lot of ways, but I think we, you know, friendly competitors because we both had the same mission um, all of these years that we've been um, in this space together, which is provide the best possible marketing tools for advisors to help them grow their business and interact with clients. So because our mission and goals were so aligned, um, it really made sense eventually um, to have this acquisition happen. And um, 20 over 10 has been around just over five years, so not that long. But in that time, we've really grown. So we started, uh, my husband actually, Ryan Russell, is one of the initial co-founders with Nick DiMatteo and Dave Squires. And so the three of them started the company. And I was brought in very early on, like day one, week one. <laughs> um, uh. <laughs> uh, really to do everything. So I did sales, marketing, uh, operations, everything. And when we started the business, we can laugh about this now, but you know, our idea really was let's create a drag and drop modular approach to web design for financial advisors because they can't use some of these really great tools that have that, like a Squarespace that people might be familiar with. Sure, um, right. 
And so we thought we'll build this and our, our appeal will be, it'll be a build it yourself platform with really low prices because you don't need to work with the designer. You can just build it yourself. Well, we opened the doors and it was crickets, you know, nobody was coming to build their own website. Um, and we really quickly had to pivot and realize that for most in financial services, unlike some other, you know, industries where it's very common for a photography business or a restaurant to go and build their own website, um, that this was a very different industry. And so very quickly we pivoted, we built an entire backend compliance tool um, to make it you know, easier for us to serve people in all different situations and the different compliance needs that they had. And we really just started focusing on also offering services to help the advisor get up and running. So, you know, website design, copywriting, all those things. And because we didn't have, um, you know, strong connections in the industry when we first started out, we were all designers and marketers and developers. We just used the skill set that we knew in order to grow. So we, from day one, wrote a blog post every single day. I started recording videos to share on social media um, and hosting webinars probably about three years ago. And so we said, we're going to practice what we preach and just create as much content as we can. And we'll share with people what works, what doesn't work along the way. Sort of like, let's be on this journey together. And um, we kept just reinvesting every cent into the product and making changes for the customers we already had. And, you know, like anything else, right? Like investments or creating a healthy lifestyle. There's like this exponential nature of running a business where once you, you know, it starts to snowball and eventually people start telling people and it really starts to take off. So I can't believe it's only been five and a half years. It feels like a lifetime, but. Sure, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was you know, it was an amazing experience to uh, spearhead something that could grow so quickly. Awesome. Boy, that's great. I I, have, I had never heard the 20 over 10 story, but boy, that sounds very familiar to what happened with FMG where um, it was all hands on deck and everybody did everything. And uh, it's um, uh, trying to get that first break when the financial services industry is, is tough because it, it, it has that... Um, that compliance and regulatory oversight, which adds a real third dimension to it. Right. So let's, uh, so first up, Samantha, I wanted to talk a little bit about the merger with FMG suite and, and why it was the right move at the right time. Did it, it was, it, did it make sense from a, um, uh, from a, a, from a, uh, from an expanding your broker dealer reach and your RIA reach? Did it make sense from a, a platform? What, what was really kind of behind the scenes driving the, the merger? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there was a lot of different factors that all kind of came together to create the perfect storm to make it happen. Um, You know, when you're starting out as an entrepreneur, like my husband and his co-founders were, you know, they were really excited to build it. But as it got bigger and bigger and bigger too, there came a point where they knew they either needed to take outside funding and maybe bring in a CEO, COO to grow to like 100 staff. We were at about 35 at the time. Um, Or we needed to do either a merger or acquisition. We, you know, anybody who's grown a business to a certain size understands that, you know, you hit these kind of pivotal moments where you have to make these sort of decisions. And we hit one of those. And as we looked around the different options, again, coming back to that idea that with FMG, we had that clear mission 
they also, you know, I shouldn't say they, we also at FMG now, because I'm, I'm part of the, the yeah. yeah, you're part um, of the team. But, you know, at the time when we were looking at it, FMG had, did have a lot more relationships in some of the markets that we were not as strong in. And then we had a lot of relationships in the independent RIA. So we complemented each other with our audiences and our, you know, as we thought about what technology and platforms we wanted to build and we listened to the FMG team and what they wanted to build and what they were interested in, it really just felt aligned that if we came together with our talent and our product, we could really create some amazing innovative products over the next 5, 10, 15 years together. So it the stars just aligned. I mean, it's not an easy sure. thing to get everybody on board for these things. And it really, it was a great fit. Yeah, it's uh, I, th- I, th- you, you're right. You know, companies do reach that inflection point where they either argue down an investor, they look for a partner to grow with, and it sounded like, boy, that was the the right place, right time. Now you have now the title now of chief evangelist at FMG Suite. Give me an idea of how you see that role evolving uh, over the over the short period and then the, then the longer period. Yeah, it's funny. My mom, she said, what does that mean? I've never heard of that before. And it sounds like a downgrade in your job because you were a CMO before. But I, you know, for those who may not be familiar, if you think of an evangelist, um, it really, the the word comes from, um, you know, more of a religious background of somebody right. who goes out and preaches the good news, preaches the good word. But a lot of companies, especially, you know, tech companies, SaaS companies, bigger companies are are having a chief evangelist role because there is so much information out there. There's so much content. There's so many audiences to connect with that having somebody whose role is to really talk with the people, talk with potential clients, talk with um, current customers, talk with partners, be the boots on the ground that go out there and have those conversations and then bring that back and help inform future innovations and iterations of products. But my favorite part is probably the education, right? I love getting on video or a podcast or hosting an event and really diving deep into granular how-to components of how to market your business better and empowering the financial advisors that we work with to do just that. And so the chief evangelist title to me is my absolute dream job because it is all of the things that I was doing at 20 over 10 already that I loved, the education, the brand advocacy, going back and, and talking with product teams. But a lot of the things that were that are part of um, chief marketing officer positions or business development positions that I, you know, wasn't as passionate about, I no longer am in charge of. <laughs> so right, right. It, is a, it is a perfect fit for me. Uh, it's good to hear. You know, you do, you do hear the word evangelist quite a bit in tech circles. Uh, you hear you know, Salesforce has its share of evangelists. Adobe has its share of evangelists. And they are out there preaching about how to use the product. Some are connected with the company, some aren't. And uh, that has become, uh, in the last three or four years, a much more commonplace term uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's people that really have great experience with the product that are out there talking about how wonderful it is. And uh, uh, it, it gets quite a bit of traction in the industry. There's quite a bit of eyes and ears that turn to it. Yeah, I think it's um, wonderful that when we were really going through the acquisition, you know, Scott 
White, the CEO, you know, he and I had a conversation, a couple conversations, and he was really such a wonderful proponent of saying, you know, where do you see yourself being able to offer the most value? If you could create a position, what would you envision it to look like? And really allowing me to propose what I thought would be the best way to use my talents in this new chapter. And I'm so grateful for that um, and realize how lucky I am because, like I said, for as somebody who loves to, you know, go out there and just talk with people and teach, teaching is something I'm so passionate about. I used to think I was going to be a teacher when I was a kid, and I guess I am in a new way now. Sure, you are. Really, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really perfect. All right. Well, let's uh, let's leave the merger behind uh, and let's t- let's roll up our sleeves a bit and let's uh, switch gears and talk about the new SEC role. I know that's one that uh, you've been you've been doing interviews. You've talked about. You've talked to a couple of uh, compliance people about. I'm sure. Um, but just to bring everybody up to speed on the podcast, late last year, I think it was in the, under the cover of darkness, sometime in December, uh, the SEC announced a new rule <laughs> that it's type of, of a new type of advertising and marketing tools that it was primarily directed towards RIAs. So. Uh, the great thing was that for the first time in 40 years, the SEC looked into modernizing rules, which, you know, I almost had to pinch myself a little bit to think about the SEC and 40 years ago. What were we dealing with 40 years ago and where are we at now? Um, so it was really awesome. The regulators were moving forward. And if nothing else, that was just a huge victory for the industry that the uh, that the regulators looked at this and said, well, we need, need to modernize it. So first question up for you, Samantha, is give us your insight into the new SEC rule and kind of most importantly, uh, touch on let, let's talk about RIAs first and how it may open the door for registered investment advisors to use testimonials, endorsements, and third-party ratings. Yeah. So if you are a independent RIA, um, it again, I think one of the things just to be clear on too, uh, depending on when people listen to this, the rule is not in effect yet. I just want to make no, right. that clear. You're right. Yeah. So yeah. Nobody goes and starts implementing this tomorrow. Right. right. It's, um, got a, it's got that 60 day. Is it a 60 day review period before? And then we get comment period, I think it's called. Yes, exactly. So it has to, um, and it hasn't actually, because of when Biden came in, he put a, like a pause on everything. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting for that pause to be lifted and then it will uh, be 60 days after that. So it may still be a little while, um, but once it is officially, the ink is dried and it's official, I personally think the biggest opportunity is going to be third-party independent review sites. So the same way if you want right now to hire a plumber or a contractor, or you want to decide where are we going to go for dinner tonight in this new city that we're vacationing in, what do you do? You Google, you know, best burger in San Diego, or you you Google plumber near me. And you'll get a list of options available to you and there'll be reviews. Now you might do this right on Google. You might go to Yelp and search for things. Exactly, and right. Mm-hmm. Up until this ruling, really, there's been no way for the consumer to easily parse through and determine, hey, I have this list of potential financial advisors to work with. Which one is the best for me? How do I compare them against each other? Other than they can have meetings with all of them, they can ask for references. But you know, just the same way if you're booking a hotel, you go on TripAdvisor and you look at reviews and, you know, you take it with a grain of salt when you read somebody's review and you can tell maybe they're more curmudgeon and they're just yeah, everything that course, everything yes. bothers them. Um, you know, there's positive and negative and you get to read them for yourself. It's something we call in marketing social proof. 
and it has been missing from financial services. And it's not good for the consumer. And it's also not good for the advisors because the advisors who really are doing an amazing job aren't able to rise to the top and showcase that. So um, I am so excited about this, the potential that this has um, beyond testimonials or endorsements. And so what the difference is, is a review, you don't have any um, control over that, right? So somebody can go to Google or Yelp and just leave a review for your business and many people don't realize they can actually do that right now. If you have a listing on Google Maps, anyone can leave a review for your business currently without you being able to control it. But a testimonial is you have an, a client, you know, email you and they leave you a really great write-up saying, you know, it was great working with you. You've added so much clarity to this process. And then you say to them, can I put that on my website? that would be a testimonial. So there's a big difference between testimonials and reviews. Sure, and I think right. that as we move forward, compliance teams are going to have a lot less problems with those review. This is just my prediction. I could be wrong. Sure. Not a compliance officer, again, just a marketer. But I would say that I think people will have less of a concern with those third-party reviews because they really can't be altered or you know, um, the advisor doesn't have as much control over them as a testimonial or an endorsement. Yeah, I think that I think you touched on the key there with a review uh, in, the, in the SEC's ideal world. The person would be able to write a review and connect good or bad. Uh, and the advisor would connect to them and the advisor would never touch it. It would it would it would out be out there acting independently, much much like you can do for a restaurant, much like you right. can do for a plumber, as you pointed out. It's a it it always is a it's a it it's 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 an odd world that I can learn more about a plumber than I can learn more about a financial advisor. Uh, but it's it's great that they're taking some of the initial steps on this. Now, one of the things, Samantha, I wanted you to touch on briefly is the differences really with an uh, with an uh, an RIA how they would adopt this versus a, an independent rep who works at a broker dealer. Yeah. So if you are a work, if you're affiliated with a broker dealer, they are going to have their own interpretation. They're going to have their own rollout plan for how they're going to be able to, you know, monitor this. And because you're affiliated with them and operating underneath them, the buck stops with them. So if right. there's ever an issue, it's, it's they who would have to take the fall. So of course, they're going to need a plan to roll it out, especially if they're serving thousands of advisors. So on day 60, when things are official, you're most likely not going to be able to go out there and start, you know, emailing all your customers, asking them to leave you a review. Uh, juxtapose that with an independent RIA, you know, you will get to probably pretty quickly, again, I would still suggest before you do anything, you have outside counsel look at it. Um, but you would be able, you know, to maybe have an email that you send to all your clients saying, you can now leave me a review on Google and here's a link to do that. Or have it in your email signature where you ask people to leave you a review and you link it right in your email signature. Um, so you'll you'll have the ability to to kind of capitalize on this a little bit quicker. Yeah, and I think I think what you're touching on there is a, a really a great recommendation to to get that outside counsel because the the RAs themselves they're going to need to 
they're going to need to have a policies and procedures about how they approach this, why they approach this, uh, how they how they let certain uh, how, how they approach testimonials. Did they approach everyone? Did they give them a period to answer? Did they give them a period to change their uh, proposal? All that all that kind of nooks and cranny stuff that when the regulators come and knocking, they'll want to see what the methodology is and what kind of the thought pattern was. Um, uh, so before you would adopt anything, uh, have a plan uh, and and certainly council can help you form that plan. Yeah. And when I did a webinar just uh, last week or the week before, and we we had um, an attorney from Stark and Stark. Yeah, his name is Max Chateau, and he specializes in um, you know compliance, advertising compliance for RIAs. And one of the things he mentioned to me was he even thinks within the independent RIA community that this will be a slower rollout than people realize because the rule as it's written still leaves up a lot for interpretation, and there's yes. a lot of gray yeah. areas, and mm -hmm. so. The people that go first, you know, yeah. are the ones sort of taking that risk. Of, That's right. Know. So, yeah, he, right. So he thinks it'll even be a little bit slower than maybe we realize because of that. Yeah, I always, uh, yeah, it's a great idea. I want you to do it first, Samantha. See what the SEC <laughs> says to you. Uh, oh, right. oh, you're not registered. You're you were uh, the 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 Secretary of State of uh, uh, Massachusetts or regulate you. Well, let's see what they say before I do it. Uh, <laughs> then it'll be a lot easier to write my policies and procedures. Yeah, exactly. I, I I get the same sentiment when I when I talk to RAs about it. That um, it, I, I I one of the senses I've gotten. It would be curious, uh, and that we can move on to another section of this uh, podcast. But do you uh, the sense I'm getting is that some of the smaller RAs will be a little more uh, will will have a little more um, desire to adopt it some, than some of the larger RIAs, just because they they'll look to gain that marketing advantage. Have you have you explored that any? That was also the the sense that I had when talking through these changes with Max on that webinar, and also it's something I've seen in practice. Um, you know, over the last five years at 20 over 10, if if we work with a advisor that's just one solo person, they're often, you know, more likely to adopt things quicker or those are some of the firms that we might see already having Google reviews um, like we talked about. Sure. Right. Yeah, I right. agree with that. Okay, good. All right. Okay, so a uh, good chunk of stuff there. So I want to let's spend the last 10 minutes of the podcast kind of drawn on all your powers here, Samantha. This is one of the ones going to call you, you're going to have to kind of pull your crystal ball out because I want to, I want to get, I want to, I want to get from you kind of what, what marketing trends you see emerging here in 2021. I, you know, 2020 was, was, um, I, I, one of the major marketing trends I think in 2020 was certainly the, the, the rise of the zoom conference. I, I don't advisors, didn't do that. It wasn't part of their practice, but within a very short period of time, it became part of their practice. And that really dictated a lot of the marketing trends that emerged. So as we go in here into 2021, what do you see? What do you see on the horizon? It's a great question. I have, I wrote a, an article um, back at the end of 2020 offering up um, some of these predictions. So I'll highlight okay. the I think All are, right. are the, the most uh, salient, even as we've, you know, gotten into February here. So one of the first is offering subscription-based services. I think we're going to see many more firms starting to 
you know, realize that there's a whole nother group of people that they can serve and start, you know, creating those client loyalties with a much younger audience of people who they've traditionally not been able to serve because, you know, they're in their 40s and their money's all tied up in their 401k at their company. And every time they switch jobs, they move the 401k. And so they have no way to, um, the advisors had no way to really earn a living off of those types of clients sure. if they're in an AUM model. So the subscription-based model works for that, but it also is something consumers are becoming incredibly familiar with. It's how so many businesses are run, and it makes it really easy to know what you're paying somebody when. I think that's going to become much, much more popular this year and in the years to come. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, it seems like I adopt a new subscription every month. <laughs> right. It, Sometimes you have to go back through and see do you still <laughs> use them all. Uh, I, I, I adopted Roku not too long ago. I'm sure, Samantha, with small children, you probably adopted Disney Plus not too long ago. Yes, at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> there you go. So subscriptions, fascinating. Good stuff. All right. Yep. Um, so another one is retargeting ads. I think many people find the idea of retargeting ads to be something that only really big companies or brands can use. For those of you listening that maybe don't understand what a retargeting ad is, if you, you know, you're online and you're shopping on Nordstrom and you search for a pair of jeans and then you don't buy the jeans, but everywhere you go on social media or you'll see ads online for those pants, right? That's a retargeting ad. And it's not used often in this industry, but you can do it very effectively. So you can track when people land on your website and then show them ads on other sites that they visit. So you know that these people are, are already aware of you. You know that maybe they've read your blog or they visited your site. And now you can re-pop back up when they're you know, on Facebook and they can be reminded of your firm. Gotcha. Now, registered investment advisors, again, would have a little more flexibility with that than broker dealers, I take it. Yeah. I'm, well, it de again, it definitely depends. I've seen various, um, how conservative people want to be. It depends on the, on the broker dealer. So gotcha. I would definitely check and ask with them. But I think that is a trend that will just continue to become more and more popular. Sure. Okay. And then another one is utilizing video, getting somebody to be the spokesperson or the face of your brand, your business, your firm, putting them on camera. I actually just wrote a whole piece about the mere exposure effect. So it's a psychological phenomenon that tells us that the more we're exposed to something, the more that we report that we like it or that, you know, we think fondly of it. And, you know, we have all done this before where we hear a song on the radio for the first time and we think that is horrible. I'm never listening to that again. And then it comes on over and over again. And by the 15th time, you're singing along to it, right? Right. Tapping your we toe, right? Use, we can use that in our marketing just by, you know, having your face be in someone's feed when they're scrolling on LinkedIn or on Facebook or you send an email to prospects, but you always have a video message that you include, or you create, you know, a YouTube channel where you record video. Video also in 2020, people are watching hours more video every single week than we've ever watched before. And it really allows us to move a lot of those in-person conversations online and recreate those experiences because of all the nonverbal that you can include. Um, I'm really bullish on video for a trend that people should really capitalize on. 
Uh, yeah, that's it. It is so true because you do identify better with a video, and boy, it is kind of that evangelist role. Um, one of as you know, I, as I talked to advisors throughout last year, one of the things they talked about was that um, how people changed last year was they were always home. They when they would mm -hmm. make a phone call, people would pick up the phone. Um, much different uh, to how they were used to operating where they would leave voicemails and messages. So video actually helps communicate that message and, and keeps it consistent from client to client and from prospect to prospect. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a game changer. <laughs> it's a game changer. It is. Okay. And then the last one, I think I just want to highlight, uh, there's a few more. We can link to the, in the show oh, notes. Oh, perfect. Yeah, we will do full, that. The full post with all of them. But the last one is, hyper-personalization in marketing in general, but powered by automation. So uh, again, you know, we've seen, we've, we've gone past the days of you just have a spray and pray. Everybody gets the exact same message. To <laughs> now you might have like one or two different lists, one for clients, one for prospects, and maybe you have their first name automatically added to the beginning. I really believe we are going to see more and more of this hyper-personalization because people expect messages to be personalized. You can get vitamins personalized to you. Um, actually, one of the stories I love, you know, Coca-Cola sales were either flat or on a short decline in many parts of the United States and other parts of the Western world. And then they did that share a Coke campaign where they put people's names on the bottle right, and right. their sales increased for the first time in, in I think it was 10 years um, when they did that campaign. So just incredible what personalization can do. But what I'm really talking about is being able to see, you know, hey, this person, Liz, she only tends to open up the emails that I send her if they are about social security. So mm -hmm. I'm going to stop sending her all the other emails that I send out and I'll send her less, but what I do send her, she will open. Or I'm going to create an entire list of um, prospects who I know based upon interacting with them on LinkedIn are entrepreneurs and really interested in you know building businesses and all of the different things that come with that. And I'm going to send them content around those things to start conversations. That to me is a huge opportunity that we haven't seen a lot of in this business. And it's something that FMG Suite um, and 20 over 10 both have been working on. And I'm really excited to see what our teams continue to come up with in this area. Hyper-personalization. I like it. Yeah. And, and uh, listeners, write that down. No more. No more spray and pray. I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that expression. Okay, Samantha, so that, that is perfect. Uh let me let's close with just one thought here. Uh, we're coming up on the the, the 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 time for the podcast. A lot of traditional marketing strategies were lost last year. Uh, you know, for example, the in-person seminar, uh, those just stopped, uh, stopped sometime around in March. What do you see? Do you see any, uh, what one or two do you see making a comeback this year? You know, I really don't, not this year. <laughs> not this Maybe. year. Maybe as time goes on, but just looking at the vaccine rollout and what people are still comfortable with, I don't think this year we will see people going back to bigger events. I do think by the end of this year, the very tail end and into next year, we'll start to see that. But I think the days of inviting people to come to an in-person seminar to, to learn something educational are going to be... You know, you're not going to get as many people to come out and do it. Gotcha. You're always going to 
going to get a higher attendance rate. And you can also repurpose. You know, if you record it as a video or a webinar, now you can create clips of it. You can share those clips on your social channels. You can email the recording to people. It's much more difficult to do that live. What I think we will see, though, is client events or, mm-hmm. um, you know, people wanting to get back and see people in person again. And the way that might look, you know, could be different for people. I think the event has to be enticing enough to get people to come just because it's fun, though, less about education or planning and more just about it being a fun thing to go do. Um, I know somebody who every year they run out a movie theater and right. they invite all right. their clients to an advanced screening or um, somebody who does like an antiques roadshow style appraisal event where people can bring wow, fascinating. From yeah. their house and then they ask, they tell them, bring a friend and they all can bring one antique to have appraised by an appraiser they bring in. So those types of things I think we will see come back, but I would say not till 2022. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. It seems, it seems as if, uh, uh, some of those traditional marketing tools, the, the ship sailed and it really sailed uh, due to the pandemic. It seems that uh, some of the reps are and, and our advisors are just refining their tools past it. But I agree with you. I think the client events are always going to have a place. So, Samantha, I can't thank you enough for joining us for the podcast today. Uh, I think the listeners got some great info. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everybody. Until next time, Mark and Emotion podcast. Spread the word. Thank you for listening to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. If you found this episode informative, please share with your peers and colleagues. Visit fmgsuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox.